Welcome to Cornerstone Reformed Baptist Church. Thank you for using and sharing our resources. What you're about to hear is God's Word from one of our teaching elders. We trust that God's Word will inspire, instruct, and bless you. For further teachings or information on our ministry, please visit us on our website at cornerstonerbc.com. That's cornerstonerbc.com. Brethren, the narrative that we began last week continues in the book of Judges. It began in chapter 19 and it will actually continue not only here in chapter 20 but until the end of the book. So what is in question here? What is this narrative continuing? I'm not going to recount everything that took place in chapter 19 but let me give you a small recap. You remember it was about a Levite man. Levite man who traveled south to a place called Bethlehem to recover and to reconcile with his concubine, to speak kindly to her, tender words, and and to to receive her back into his household. And he does so. He makes the journey and he receives his concubine back. And as they were progressing back to the north, back to the hill country of Ephraim, where he comes from, it got dark. And so they stayed at a place called Gibeah. Gibeah belongs to the Benjaminites. These are of the brothers of the people of Israel. It's a tribe amongst the twelve. And while they were there, something horrible took place. You remember, you remember the story. It's only been a week. They were engaged there. The hospitality of an old man who also was from the hill country of Ephraim. He took them in because none of the Benjamites would. No hospitality was shown by the people of Benjamin. But when they received hospitality from this old man and into the evening, we don't know how far in, before you know it, there's a racket outside knocking and crying by the men. Some men from that city had come to the door and they demanded the Levite to be taken out so they can have illicit sexual relationships or relations with this man. Abominable sin, detestable in the eyes of the Lord. And we know the story. Then beyond that man, this Levite, to save the skin off his own back, he thrusts his concubine out amongst the wolves to devour her. And they devour her, they, they do. They set her free. They abuse her all night. And one can only imagine the torment that she went through. They abuse her all night. And then they, they let her free at the break of dawn when she finds herself back to the home where she was staying and her husband was. She barely has the energy to get there. And she collapses at the threshold of that door and she collapses dead. The next day, her husband sees her lying dead, not responding to anything he says. She pick, he picks her up, places her on his donkey, and then they return back to the hill, hill country of Ephraim, back home. But when he gets home, he does something you and I can hardly imagine. It was a very barbarous act. He begins to cut her up limb from limb and then send her parts all over the territory of Israel. Twelve pieces. One for every tribe. By courier, he sends them all over the nation of Israel, to all the tribes of Israel. And that's what we got to at this point. It's needless to say that Israel, the 12 tribes, were outraged. At least 11, I should say, were outraged. If the, if the Levite man was intending to elicit some, a shock and, and outright rage and, and, and horrifying the, the, the other brothers that lived in the land, well, he, what he did hit the mark. As I said, what he did was a barbarous act. And the response of the people in Israel, the response of those who received this courier, this package in the mail, this was their response. 
in verse 30 from the last chapter, chapter 19, the response was this. All who saw it said, such a thing has never happened or been seen from the day that the people of Israel came up out of the land of Egypt until this day. Consider it. Take counsel and speak. Human remains period across the nation. Who would have thought of it? Now, something similar happens, not quite as barbarous. It'll happen actually in a couple of centuries' time when Israel receives their first king, King Saul, you remember. And King Saul does something with his oxen, a pair of oxen. He cuts them up. And then he sends them to all his brothers in the land of Israel, trying to get them to come and unite, to unite with their fellow brothers at Jabesh Gilead. Why? Because of the tyranny that they're experiencing at the hand of the Ammonites. The Ammonites have come to them and said, we are going to pluck your right out, the right eye of everyone in that city. And Saul hears of it and says, we need help. And as brothers in Israel, we band together and, and we must come together to help our brother and so he does that and him cutting up the oxen into all the land was a a signal to tell them that if you don't come and if you don't help we're going to come back and this is what we're going to do to your oxen but oxen is a far cry from a human being being cut up so what we find here it makes you sick to the stomach no doubt and needless to say it was enough to move deeply moved the whole of the people of Israel. The whole of the nation of Israel was moved when they received this package from Dan to Beersheba. Then when we hear those words from Dan up the north, that's the city of Dan, not so much the territory, the city, from the north Dan all the way to the south Beersheba. That is from the north to the south, that is saying encompassing the whole of Israel. And even over the, the Transjordanian side of, of, of the people, the, 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 the tribes that took land over the eastern side of the Jordan. So this, is, this shock and horror had reached all of Israel. And within days, the 11 tribes of Israel, apart from Benjamin, of course, mobilized. And they mobilized an army of some 400,000 battle-ready men. Men of valor, men of war, men with the sword who were ready to take it to the Gibeans. This was a serious matter and Israel was concerned. Israel was concerned with what was taking place within her borders. Israel seemed at least to be concerned to recompense the evil and the wickedness that had taken place, the injustice that had taken place within her borders. She was concerned to make atonement for those sins, for the wickedness that had taken place in their midst. It sounds quite noble, doesn't it? At this point, it sounds like this is the right thing to do. I mean, to be so moved with decisive action and such unity that you hardly ever see among the people of Israel, that all the tribes are united, all 11 tribes are united one with the other to uphold the purity in the land That's a noble thing. They might not know the detail of the crime because the Levite hasn't been spoken to. They haven't received his testimony. That will come. They'll still yet to speak to him, but they gathered 400,000 strong army and they're ready to purge the evil from among their midst. Now at the surface, 
it seems like it was a noble thing to do and I submit to you. This one act may be that, but there is a level of hypocrisy before us. There's a level of hypocrisy in the actions of the people of Israel because there is a selectiveness in the sins that they choose to tolerate and the sins they choose to act upon. This is what we see before us. Emotions are high right now. And wouldn't your emotions be high if you received a package like that? God forbid. Disgust. This is horrible. This is atrocious. How could something like this happen in our land? So emotions are, are high. But are these people moved for the right reasons? Is it truly a zeal for Yahweh that we see before us? Is it his righteousness? Is it his holiness? Is it a concern that the people of God preserve purity under God for his glory and his glory alone that we see before us in the text? Are their actions rooted in faith or something else? Because, beloved, there is a toleration for sins. Or if there is a toleration for some sins and not others, then the heart needs to be examined. Because that's a hard issue. Are they jealous for the Lord God? Or have their sensibilities been offended? Think about that for a moment. What's going on here? Are there certain things that they, they, they dislike and they're, they're ready to act upon immediately and others that they're prepared to look the other way? Are they moved by some sins, some hideous sins, and yet, on the other hand, unmoved by others? Because if it comes to the Word of God, if it comes to what Yahweh wants, He wants total and full that's what he commands that's what he demands he cannot look upon sin he lives in unapproachable light he's a God who is light himself there is no darkness found in him and that's what he expects from his people he's concerned with the total purity the total set apartness of his people for himself he's concerned that his people if they sin they deal with the sin in a godly manner according to the law prescription according to the covenant he made with his people that's what he's concerned with and if sin exists Yahweh is concerned that that sin is put to death that no sin is tolerated that they don't fancy or tolerate a particular sin and look the other way and see another sin that offends them and then they say we're going to act upon that sin. Yahweh is concerned to eradicate sin as it is. I ask therefore, if this was a noble act by the people of Israel, where there's incredible unity, as I said, with the 11 tribes, which is very unusual, then why, why did they not act? when it came to the abomination that even now is taking place amongst the people of Dan. You see, we're in chapters 19 through 21. You remember chapters 17 through 18. You remember what happened? Dan. You remember what took place there? There was another Levite, not this Levite. It was another Levite. And he was in the house of Micah acting as a, a, his own personal priest, if you remember. And the people of Dan came through and they, they said, why don't you come and become a priest for us, for a whole tribe, the tribe of Dan, for your brothers. Leave this, Micah. Come and work for us. And he was prepared to do that. And this is how that text ends. And the people of Dan set up the carved image for themselves, carved image for themselves, the carved image 
of Micah. And Jonathan, the son of Gershom, son of Moses, and his sons were priests to the tribe of the Danites until the day of the captivity of the land. So they set up Micah's carved image, a false god, pagan idol worship, a carved image that he had made as long as the house of God was at Shiloh. That's a long time. This idolatry is taking place among the people of Dan. And why were the people of Israel turning a blind eye? Whole tribes steeped and engaged in the forbidden, detestable practice of idolatry. A whole tribe engaged in bending their knee false gods in the midst of Israel the highest treason the highest form of rebellion against the only true God where is Israel's zeal for purity and the sanctity of worship engaging in unlawful abominable ways that are clearly contrary to the commands of God among their brothers there in Dan where is their unity Where is their zeal? Where is their jealousy for God to purify the nation from such atrocious practices? It's not though God wasn't clear on the point. In Deuteronomy chapter 13, He's expressly clear. He says there, if you hear through Moses before the people of Israel take possession of the land, He says, if you hear... In one of your cities, which the Lord your God is giving you to dwell there, that certain worthless fellows have gone out among you and have drawn away the inhabitants of the city, saying, let us go and serve other gods, false gods, breaking the second commandment and also the first, which you have not known, then you shall inquire and make search and ask diligently. Remember those words. This is not haphazard. This is not rushed. There are serious consequences. So he says, you shall inquire and make search and ask diligently. And behold, if it is true or if it's found to be true and certain that such an abomination has been done among you, you shall surely put the inhabitants of that city to the sword, devoting it to destruction. All who are in it and its cattle with the edge of the sword, you shall gather all its spoil into the midst of the open square and burn the city. All its spoils with fire must be burnt. The whole burnt offering to the Lord your God, it shall be a heap forever. It shall not be built again. None of the devoted things shall stick to your hand, that the Lord may turn from His fierceness of anger and show you mercy and have compassion on you and multiply you as He swore to your fathers, if you obey the voice of the Lord your God, keeping all His commandments that I am commanding you today. And doing that what is right in the sight of the Lord your God. Why now, Israel? Why so zealous now? Collecting for yourself 400 men of valor ready with the sword to take it to the Benjaminites. Why, why now and not then? Why, why Benjamin and not Dan? How are these people distinguishing between the battles they, they fight on behalf of Yahweh and the battles they're not going to fight? How are they making that decisions? How are they discerning the will of the Lord? 
How are they making those decisions, beloved? Is it according to the word of God? I'll tell you how they're making those decisions. In those days, there was no king in Israel. And everyone did what is right in his own eyes. Because if, you're what, it, if what it comes down to, if they're doing what is right in the eyes of Yahweh, according to the covenant he has given, according to the word that he's given his people, then they would know that these heinous sins ought never be tolerated among them in the land of Israel. Sin needs to be eradicated from among them. Both sins require immediate action. What we see before us here in chapter 20 as well as what took place and continues to take place in chapter 17 through 18 in the tribe of Dan. So brethren, let me, let me ask you, do you have a zeal and a fervor for some types of heinous sins and unrighteousness and not others? Brethren, are we indignant at this evil and maybe not so much at that? Let me make it a little bit more personal. My intention is not to point the finger at anyone. It's not to stand here with haughty eyes and point the finger. That is not my intention. My intention is self examination this evening are there sins that you are, you are ruthless with in your own lives but sins that you may tolerate you may know they're there but you're comfortable with those sins and you look the other way is it possible that you are now or I am now guilty of what the people of Israel are guilty of Doing what is right not in God's eyes, but doing what is right in our own eyes. We know our sins. Everyone knows their own heart. Everyone knows. I'm not talking about the sins that we don't know. I'm not talking about the sins the Spirit of God will reveal as we grow in our maturity with Him. I'm talking about particular sins if you know exist and you know that they are within you and yet you have not dealt with those sins in a biblical manner. Is it possible that you tolerate some but are ruthless with others? Because remember this, sin is a slippery slope. A little bit of leaven leavens the whole lump. A little bit of leaven left there. Leavens the whole lump. We may deal with 99% of the sins that we know are within us. 99%. By the world's standards, they're very good numbers. 99% is A++++. The world would give you a really big tick, but the Word of God says no. No, if you know there's another 1%, that 1% would become too unchecked. And then 3%. And before you know it, that little bit of leaven will ferment the whole lump and it will bring ruin to your life and mine. And this is what we're seeing in the lives of the people of Israel. Tolerating some sins, some heinous sins. Sins that their jealousy for God should have, should have made them really angry, righteously indignant at. And yet they overlooked some, but their sensibilities were offended by others and they pursued the others. That's what we call hypocrisy. To know and to look the other way. 
Sin needs to be put to death, beloved. Sin is like a cancer. It metastasized. Metastasizes. It spreads. That's a better word for it. And it spreads. And it spreads. And it will continue until it produces the goal of death. You don't need to tolerate sin. There is one who's better than your sin and mine. Dealing with your sin biblically is not to try harder. It's to recognize. It's to recognize your sin. And it's to come to the one who was faithful and just. To confess that sin before him. And to trust that he's able to cleanse you from that sin and from all unrighteousness. It's about walking in faith in Jesus Christ. It's about loving him more than you love your own sin. It's about how your heart is directed. Whether it's directed to the things of this world and and the passions of the flesh. Or whether truly you believe that Jesus is better than all this. The question we need to ask ourselves is, is Jesus better? Because if there are sins that may be tolerated, it's because they are alluring, it's because they give something, there is a level of satisfaction, it's not your spirit it is your flesh that is satisfied in these sins and as Christians we need to be biblical in everything that we say and do and the word of God says that if you are in Christ Jesus then you're not bound by that sin you're not bound by that habitual sin, I've tried so many times Yes, but in your own strength. But in Christ Jesus, sin's power has been broken. The chains have been broken. There is no dominating power over your life, Christian, in sin. If you continue to sin, it's because you're trying, because you're appeasing the flesh. And rather than coming to the Lord Jesus Christ and living by faith and walking in His light and allowing your heart to be completely devoted and captivated by His love, to see Jesus as better, to see God as better, to see eternity as better than the here and the now. It's to pursue Jesus Christ for all that He is. It's for His power, His Spirit to be abiding in you and to produce fruit. And that fruit is to put sin to death because sin is either being put to death or sin is putting you to death. There's no two ways about it. We know the history of Israel. They tolerated sin and it brought their destruction. Christ, Christ achieved the victory upon that cross, beloved. Share in His victory. For Israel right now, the offense is great. They received a body part in the mouth. It depends on which tribe you were to what part that was. And that's a horrible thing. And they're righteously indignant at this point in time. The whole nation. That's 11 tribes apart from the tribe of Benjamin. United together, which is remarkable as I said. Reunited to, to expel and to purge the evil from among them. And so they come to the Levite. 400,000 strong men, they, they come and they, they come to the Levite and they, they ask the Levite what took place on that day. Tell us what happened. Tell us what happened with your concubine. And from verses 4 through 7, he recollects briefly the events that took place. Now you may recognize, as I was reading, 
He's obviously spoken the events in the way to sway in his own favour. A mention of the, the homosexual Benjamites that were calling upon him to be thrown out. He refers to the Gibeons and he says it's the leaders of Gibeon, who, or the, the Gibeah I should say, who wanted to kill him. No mention, no mention of the leaders in the narrative in chapter 19, but whether they were leaders or not, that, it's a possibility. He makes sure to mention what the wicked men do with his wife or his concubine, but he makes no mention of the fact that he threw her out there in the first place. But all in all, the 11 tribes of Israel get the picture. They understand the offence. And now Israel is even more determined to make the inhabitants of Gibeah of the tribe of Benjamin, pay the ultimate price. Now, don't get me wrong, evil ought to be recompensed. The covenant of God stipulates what needs to take place according to the law covenant, but it's also according to the law covenant that no judgment is made apart from the testimony of two or three witnesses. And as I read earlier, a diligent inquiry needs to be made to make sure that this man is speaking truth. If we have that, we don't see it in the text, but that doesn't mean they didn't do it at all. So I'm not going to want to speak from conjecture. But we know one thing for sure. We read chapter 19 and we know that what took place, took place. We know that this man speaking about what took place with his concubine took place. And the situation does indeed require swift and decisive action on behalf of the people of Israel before the Lord to keep the land pure and clean and to purge the evil from among them. But there is a sad reality in this text also. In verse 2 we're told, And the chiefs of all the people of all the tribes of Israel presented themselves in the assembly of the people of God, 400,000 men on foot that drew the sword. Hear that? All. And in verse 8 we're told, And all the people arose as one man saying, None of us will go to his tent and none of us will return to his home. And again in verse 11, So all the men of Israel gathered against the city, united as one man. It's incredible the unity that we have amongst the 11 tribes to all gather together as one man. As I said earlier, and on several occasions, it's so rare, even moving forward, that the tribes among the Israelites will always be in combat, in battle one with the other. They'll even align themselves with the pagans against their brother, as we'll come to see as we move forward in the kings. It seems, though, at this point that they are all united in spirit and cause and motive in their action. And it's incredible, this type of unity. But this is the sad thing. They're not united against the Canaanites. They're not united against the Philistines, the Moabites, the Ammonites. They're not united against the pagan nations in order to expel the evil practices and purge the land from them so that Christ or God, the Yahweh before them, would be exalted and and honored amongst the people around them, that they would see the glory of God amongst his people. No, that would be a reason to rejoice. But what we have here is a bitter sweet. Eleven tribes of Israel are united to destroy their own brother. This is one of their own. 
This is one of their own that the Lord God had freed from the land of Egypt under the bondage of the Egyptians. This is a brother. And now they're united together to destroy one of their own. And when the elders or the leaders of Benjamin refuse to give up the worthless men that they have called to be given up in order for them to die so that the punishment will be enacted so that the evil amongst Israel will be purged from the land and the men of Israel refuse then the only way forward is to be united in the wrath upon their own brother and bring war upon him Brethren, I'm not saying that this action is wrong. In fact, it's actually right. But I am saying it's sad. It's not what God had intended for his people. It's not what God had intended for his people who are called by his holy name. It's not what God intended for his people when he brought them out of the slavery out of Egypt through miraculous means and given them the inheritance that was promised centuries earlier to their father Abraham and now they're residing in a land as a testimony of the goodness and the, and the promise-keeping God. He, his intention for these people is that they would be a light unto the nation. That their love one for the other, their love for Yahweh, their faithfulness, their purity would enact the, 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 the jealousy or the envy of those outside. We want a God like that. We want families like that. We want brothers like that. We want friends. We want neighbors. We want to be like you, Israel. And what do they see right now? They look upon the people who have been given the name of the only true God, the name of Yahweh. And they become a laughing stock amongst the people, amongst the pagans, amongst the outsiders. And they're watching. They're actually watching. How many times as we worked our way through the scripture do we hear the kings coming and recollecting everything that the Israelites have gone through? They're watching. The world, the world is watching. Where's the love and the unity that God expects from his people? He showed them by example. He's not asking something of them that he hasn't shown them or bestowed upon them. He's given them mercy so that they would show mercy. He's given them grace so that they would show grace. He's exemplified what love is, steadfast love. That they would love one another. That they'd love their neighbors as themselves. Beloved, as I was preparing and thinking through this text throughout the week, two texts of Scripture kept coming to my mind, and this is one. The first is what the prophet Isaiah writes in Isaiah chapter 52, but then recorded again by the Apostle Paul in Romans chapter 2, and you know the text. The name of God is being blasphemed among the Gentiles because of you. I know that these words have a particular context spoken to the law, the covenant and law-breaking Jews. I understand that. But nonetheless, for years, these words have moved me. I can't think, I can't actually think of a more heartbreaking, a sadder words to be spoken than the Lord to look upon 
his people with a serious face and say that my name is being blasphemed among the Gentiles because of you. Nothing sadder than the Lord Jesus Christ to say those words to his bride, to his church. To think that we bear his name. I've given you my name, he says. I've saved you from the filth of your sin. I bore your penalty upon that cross. I bled and died on your behalf. I'm now resurrected, sitting at the right hand of the Father. I'm interceding on your behalf. I've given you my word. I've called you by name. I've led you out of bondage. I've given you my spirit. And now you drag my name in the mud. What a responsibility the church of Jesus Christ bears. The Christian church bears. Christian, you represent Christ. The church represents Jesus Christ and the world is watching. What do they see? What do they see? They will hate Christ. They will slander his holy name. They will speak ill of him. Look what they did to him 2,000 years ago. They will even blaspheme his holy name because of who he is. God forbid they do that because of how we are as his church. Of how we act. Of how the world sees us. Are we in any way living in hypocrisy? The people of God are here showing a fury, an absolute fury against the people of Benjamin. And at the same time, the hypocrisy is that they're allowing pagan idol worship to take place and the nations look in and they say, you're no different to any of us. Here you are declaring that you know Yahweh, the only true God. Here you are declaring that you have a relationship with the only God of the universe, that his name is upon you. But we look inside and you're no different to us. You even bicker and fight just like, like we do. May that never be. May that never be, beloved. That would be the most breaking, heartbreaking words I can imagine. Actually, I don't think there are any more heartbreaking words to the heart of the believer than to hear those words from the Lord. And God forbid, God forbid we do. And that's because we should, we ought to love him. Jesus is our life. Our hearts love him because of what he has done for us. We love him because he loved us first. And we're meant to be the light to the nations. We're meant to exemplify his goodness. We're meant to walk by faith, walk in his life, in his light. We're meant to show the beauty of our Savior, the glory of our Savior. We're meant to show his love, his kindness, his tenderheartedness, 
his mercy, his grace, but also his wrath and his hatred of sin, but also the offer that he gives for anyone who would come to trust in him, that they will be forgiven of their sins and receive eternal life. Oh, how winsome is the gospel. The gospel is an offense, but God forbid we become that offense. The refusal of Benjamin to hand over the worthless men for judgment is a war in the making. That's the only logical conclusion for what we have before us. And we're told back in verse 3, we're told back that they knew Israel had gathered. They knew Israel had gathered with the 400,000 strong soldiers. And here they are, they've mustered up all the men and all the fighting men that they have, and they've come up to, I think the number was 26,700. Now do this math. We do have a mathematician among us. The math is 15 to 1. The Benjaminites are outnumbered 15 to 1. Why wouldn't they just surrender, right? Isn't that what you're thinking when you're reading the text? 400,000 on one side, 26,700 on the other. Just surrender already. Put out terms of peace already. That would be the wise thing to do. That's not what we see here. Instead, they say, no, we're not going to give you those evil, wicked, foolish men, those worthless men, as the scripture tells us. We're not going to do that at all. We're going to take it to battle with you. Practically saying, bring it on. And again, it's hard to understand. It's hard to understand what is going on in the heads of the leaders who are now looking down a barrel of 400,000 strong Israelites, men of valor. That is men who are trained and battle trained, who know how to use the sword. It's not like the sword was new to them. They know how to use the sword. And they got 26,700 there. They can count, and yet they're prepared to take it to them. It's hard to understand how this is all working together in their minds. In fact, only the other day, let me tell you, only the other day, I was in the car with my brother and he turns around and says to me something along the tune of these words. I'm convinced the deeper one gets into sin, the deeper one gets into darkness, the dumber he gets. And you know what? That is so true. You know why it's true? Because it's the knowledge of God that is the beginning of wisdom. There is no wisdom apart from God. There is none. There is none. Sin has the reverse effect. Sin makes men stupid. Civil war is now inevitable, so the 11 tribes inquire of the Lord to see who should lead them into battle. Now, they've already decided they'll go into battle. We know that, right? They've already, the text tells us, they've already decided we're going to take it to the Benjaminites, we're going to go into battle, but now they inquire of the Lord, they want to know who's going to lead them in, into battle. And they've already said that they're not going to return back to their homes or their tents until they've recompensed the sin of Gibeah. They made that decision. The decision's already made. God says Judah is the tribe that will lead them into battle. That's no surprise to us. And back in Judges chapter 1, we're told that already. So eager and expectant, the men of Israel engage in the battle with the men of Benjamin. And now you'd expect an easy victory, as I said, 400,000 to 26,700 or thereabouts. Should be a walk in the park, but it's not. In fact, the first day, you remember how many fall of the people of Israel? 22,000. 22,000 people of Israel fall on the first day. It's hard to, to make sense of. 
It's clear that the Lord wants them to engage in the battle. We, we know that. They inquired of the Lord and the Lord said, yes, let Judah lead you into battle. How do they lose? And then they weep before the Lord, we're told. And they ask, should we go again? And, and the Lord says, go. And, and the next day, is there a victory? No. Because the next day, we're told, the Benjaminites take down another 18,000 men. That's 40,000 men in two battles. Remember, they started off with 26,700, the Benjaminites. These guys stand at the Israelites. The Israelites stand, started with 400,000. Now they're down to 360 because they lost 40,000 of their men. Why? Why did they lose in the two battles when it seems to us that the Lord is all for them to engage in the battle with Benjamin? Why is it that they lost in battle when it seems so right what they're doing? They're trying to purge the evil from in their midst, to remove the evil from the land of Israel. Why is it that they're losing? I know you want to answer that question. Is that why? <laughs> I, I don't really know. I don't think the text is clear as to exactly why that takes place. So I'm, I'm not going to speculate, but I am going to make some observations. From what I can see in the text, the 11 tribes of Israel are right to take decisive action against their brother Benjamin. They are right. Israel is right in her action to purify the land from such evil. And from what we can understand, this battle would, should have only been a formality, 400,000 against 26,700. I mean, this should have been an easy no-brainer, an easy win, but it's not. Also, what we see in our text is that the people of Israel do inquire of the Lord. It's not like they just go out there with their swords and run out there. They do inquire of the Lord every single time they engage. And they seek the Lord and he answers them. So why do they lose badly on both occasions? As I said earlier, I still don't know, but I know this. The state that Israel as a whole is in after losing two battles is not the same state that they were in to begin with. They are now contrite. They are now humbled. They are now broken before the Lord. Those two losses have stripped them down completely of their self-confidence. Those two losses have stripped them down completely of their self-dependence, of relying on their own muscle. It's completely stripped them down. If there was any arrogance in them, it has completely broken that down. If they had the thought that we can do this in our own strength, we're outnumbered. We out, we've outnumbered the Benjaminites 15 to 1. If that thought was even in their mind, it's no longer in their mind because they started with 400,000 they were defeated, 22,000 of their own. They went out with 380,000, another 18,000 defeated. They got 360. If they continue down that path, they're going to get down to zero and the Benjaminites are going to be the only tribes left. So what do they do? They fall on their faces before the Lord. After two defeats, they're actually a broken people. You can see it in the text. And now it seems like they're completely and totally and utterly dependent upon Yahweh. From verse 26, we're told, 
than all the people of Israel. The whole army went up and came to Bethel and wept. They sat there before the Lord and fasted that day until evening and offered burnt offerings and peace offerings before the Lord. And the people of Israel inquired of the Lord for the Ark of the Covenant of God was there in those days. And and Phinehas, the son of Eleazar, son of Aaron, ministered before it in those days. And they said, saying, this is what the people of Israel are saying now. Shall we go once more to battle against our brothers, the people of Benjamin? Hear this. Or shall we cease? And the Lord said, Go up. Tomorrow I will give them into your hands. Notice the first two times that the people of Israel came before the Lord. They did come before the Lord. But there's a suggestion that there's a representation of the people who came before the Lord. Why do I say that? It's because the author, on two occasions says that the people of Israel came before the Lord, but here on the third occasion, he's quite intentional to make sure he tells us that it's all the people of Israel. Not mentioned on the first two occasions. And then he says the whole army of God went before the Lord in the house of the Lord of Bethel. And they wept. They wept before him. What else did they do? They fasted. They afflicted themselves. Not about us, it's about you. They were concentrating their efforts, not on anything physical, but on the Lord God. They came before him in contriteness, in absolute humility. And they offered burnt offerings and peace offerings, we're told. And the emphasis of the burnt offerings and the peace offerings is, is atonement for sin because animals are being slain, so blood is shed, so sin is involved, and the atonement for sin is in the mind. The, the emphasis is also worship, worship of the only true God, in the presence of God. So not only atonement for sins, but worship, but also the emphasis is fellowship with God. That they're entering into the presence or the manifest presence before the Lord God and they're recognizing that they have or they're entitled to fellowship with Him. They've humbled themselves and now they come before the Lord God in a contrite heart. And in the end, the last words they say is, shall we go and fight against our brother or shall we cease? Remember what they said back, back in verse 8? Back in verse 8, he said, they said, we won't go back to our homes. We won't go back to our tents unless we do what we're going to do to the people of Gibeah. But now... Seems like things have changed a little. Now they're saying, Lord, if, if, is it your will? I mean, we made a decree back then not to go back until... But, 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 but now we recognize that if this is not your will, then we want to do. We want to do your will. If you say, let's cease and let's go back, we will. They put that on the table, the option before the Lord. Shall we cease or shall we fight? I don't know why exactly they lost its first two battles, but this I know. The path that the Lord allowed his people, the people of Israel, to venture into is to bring them low and bring them low he has. He's produced in them, I believe, a contrite heart of humility. He's brought them into his presence as a whole, the whole army, all the people, to appreciate who he is. To appreciate his presence. To appreciate his fellowship. So in other words, it's not so much the battle 
those in there for you, but the Lord God himself. Beloved, it's possible to do what is right, practically speaking, with the wrong heart. It's actually possible to do that. And if you do what seems to be right in obedience to the Lord with the wrong heart, then that becomes sin, apart from faith. Beloved, the Lord looks at the heart. Men looks at the outside. Men looks at the outcomes. But the Lord is the one who looks at the heart. That's what his concern is. Even with 360,000 men in Israel, they could quite easily be outnumbering the men of Benjamin. The odds are still heavily in the side of the Israelites. But they humbly seek the Lord. And in a sense, in their words, they're saying, if you're not with us, don't send us. If you're not with us, there's no victory. If you don't come with us, this is meaningless. Lord, you let us know. Shall we pursue this? Or shall we cease? We thought this is the direction we ought to take. But now we're completely at your whim. You direct us, O Lord. And the Lord said to them, Go up, for tomorrow I give them into your hand. What do they have now? They have a promise. They have a promise. The previous two occasions, let Judah lead you. But God said nothing about a victory. The second occasion, the Lord says, go. But he says nothing about a victory. Was it his will? Yes, it was his will. But here, the people of Israel receive a promise, but they only receive the promise after the Lord God has put them where he wants them to be. And that is to break them down, to bring them low, to break any self-confidence, any self-dependency, and to look to Yahweh and Yahweh alone, surrendering their hands and thinking, logically speaking, we should take them, but obvious, we cannot take them apart from you. You lead us, you guide us, you direct our ways and help us to follow. So with the promise of God, they go out and they just don't go out haphazardly. They, there's a brilliant strategy. So they, they go out and they, they lead the people of Gibeah, the men of Benjamin, outside the city. And so that when they're outside the city, there's a, another group of about 10,000 Israelites who then go into the city and ambush the city. A city that is now unprotected because all the soldiers have removed themselves from the city. They ambush the city, they burn down the city, they kill everything living. And then the signal is a column of smoke because the fire goes up into the air. And the, the others who are engaging or pursuing the Israelites, the Benjaminites, thinking they're going to win the battle like they did the first two times, they look behind them and they see this column of smoke. They realize they've been duped. Very clever. And then the Israelites turn. And the others who are in the city now come towards come towards the Benjaminites. They're squeezed. They try to go to the wilderness and the Israelites then bring them down. And on that day, they had 25,000 of them. You read the text and I hazard a guess from your eyes that you've been rooting for the good guys all along, right? And who are the good guys in this text? The Israelites, of course, because they were doing the right thing. The Benjaminites had, had committed atrocious evil acts. At least the worthless men had. And the Benjaminites were protecting them. They weren't willing to give them over so that justice, so that punishment would be enacted. They didn't want that. You're rooting for Israel. And after the first two losses, maybe you were scratching your head thinking, what's going on? How could they lose so badly when they have so many in number? And it seems like God wants them to go. 
Beloved, the Lord promises to fulfill and finally make all evil, all payment or all punishment for evil, I should say. He will recompense all evil. But that's not what we see here. The Lord's word tells us that he's a God whose throne is founded upon justice and righteousness. But it seems when we begin and we look out at the first two battles, the first two losses, that that's not what's taking place before us. And so after the first two battles, you and I are working through the text and no doubt the Israelites, it, it is reason to be demoralized, right? What's going on? I said before that two texts kept coming to mind as I was thinking about this, this chapter. I mentioned the first, Romans chapter 2. And this is the second, Psalm 73. Now, Psalm 73, that number may not mean much to you, but this may. Why do the wicked prosper? See, after two battles... The Israelites are sitting back thinking, are we not engaging in a holy war? Are we not trying to eradicate the, the evil and the wickedness from among us? Is God not approving? We have saw him on both occasions. God said, send the, the men of Judah out first. And the second time the Lord said, go. And on both occasions we lost. Benjaminites are obviously acting in an evil way. Why would God allow this to happen? Why do the evil prosper? Why from our point of view do we see those who are enacting such vileness, such wickedness? Why do they seem to be the ones who are winning the battle? Even seemingly winning the war. The psalmist in Psalm 73 makes complaint before the Lord on that point and he asks why. Have you ever asked why? Have you stood before the Lord and asked the Lord why? Why does this take place? Why is this such evil, this, this injustice coming my way? Why is this such injustice in the world? Maybe you have friends and relatives who are being subject to such injustices by authorities or powers that be. Have you ever asked the Lord why? That's what the psalmist does here. He asks the Lord why, and quite often when you ask why, and I do too, it's just like when you think of the book of Job. You don't actually get the answer you thought you wanted to get. But the Lord sometimes gives you something completely different, but it's exactly what you need. Because the psalmist asks why, and then at one point he says, thinking these matters through, asking the questions, why do the wicked prosper? And then he says, but when I thought how to understand this, understand what? How in my own eyes, within my own experience, such evil continues, and God doesn't do anything about it, it seems. This is when I thought how to understand this. It seemed to me a wearisome task. In other words, I just couldn't figure it out on my own. I couldn't understand. Until, I love the word until, because the biblical author under inspiration of the Holy Spirit is giving us the answer. And I love that. He says, until I went here this into the sanctuary of God. Then, then I discerned their end. You see, until he came to the end of human wisdom, until you come to the end of human effort, human strength, until you humble yourself before the Lord in the presence of God, the answers are found in God. Now, you might not get the answer you were looking for, but you'll get something far better. 
You'll get something far better because He knows your heart and my heart. He knows your needs and my needs. And we think we need A, but He knows we need B. And it's in the presence of God. He says the psalmist here, it's in the sanctuary of God until I went into the sanctuary of God. That's when things began to make sense. It's in the presence of God. It's in His Word that things begin to make sense to my soul. I ask a lot of questions. But those questions are not answered within myself or within the wisdom of this age. They're answered in God Himself and what He's revealed through His Word. He says, Then I discerned their end. In other words, yes, I see and it looks like to me that the evil in this world will continue and continue and many evil people and evil, evil uh, organizations and evil authorities, it seems like they are prospering. We ask, Lord, where is the justice? Those who have been beheaded on the, uh, uh, for the sake of the gospel in the book of Revelation crying out, When will you avenge our blood? But then I was able, he says, to discern their end. What is it? That he, that is God, is storing up judgment for the day of judgment. They're storing up the judgment with their sin and their wickedness and their rebellion. And God will, will recompense. All wrongs will be made right. Jesus Christ is the one who has been given authority by the Father to execute all judgment. That means his eyes see all things, peace into your soul and mind, into the soul of every human being who has ever existed. Nothing is hidden from his eyes and all will be revealed one day. In this life or the next, then I saw, he says, I discerned their end. But do we rejoice in that? Yes, we rejoice in that. But does it end there? No. Sure, we, we trust in the timing of God, in his, in his goodness. That in eternity, all things, all wrongs will be made right. But is that the only reason why we rejoice? Because we know that they will be recompensed. Because we know that all evil, all wrongs will be made right because everyone will be judged. Is that why we rejoice purely? Beloved, no. We rejoice in this, yes. But we also rejoice in the fact what the psalmist says. Because when that light bulb turned on, he said, but when I thought to understand this, it seemed wearisome to me until I went into the sanctuary of God. You have access to the sanctuary of God. The God of the universe, the only God of the universe has ushered you into his presence. He's made himself known to you. If you are in Christ Jesus, by faith, that place that was the holy of holies in the tabernacle or in the temple, the forbidden place, no pagan could enter in, dying on the spot. In fact, no other person can enter in except the high priest once once a year. Because that place was completely closed from the rest of the tabernacle. A perfect cube with a curtain completely closed. But when Jesus Christ died upon that cross, his flesh 
was the curtain that ripped from top to bottom. The, the holy of holies was broken open and the people of God have now access into the, the holy of holies, into the very presence of God. And we can enter in boldly because of the blood of the covenant, the blood of Jesus Christ, because of what He has done. Bore our sins upon that cross to give us reconciliation with the Father, the one who cannot look upon sin and unrighteousness. He's brought us into His own presence. And in this, beloved, we can rejoice. Not that we have answers. Not that we know the timing of, the God, of God as to when He will recompense the evil. We know that His Word tells us it will be recompensed. Let the timing belong to Him. The secret things belong to the Lord. But you and I ought to rejoice and be glad in the fact that He's received us, in the fact that He's allowed us access through the blood of the Lamb that was shed upon that cross into His very presence. The psalmist goes on to say, Nevertheless, I am continually with you. You hold my right hand. Don't you love that? He's complaining about why we would let the evil prosper. His eyes are made open. He says, But I can enter into His sanctuary. I'm with Him continually. He holds my hand. And then, and then he ends with these words. But for me, it is good to be near God. I have made the Lord God my refuge. That I may tell of all, of all your works. When that truth is made known to your heart that the Lord God is your refuge. Because when we complain complain because we don't know the outcomes we want to know more we may be fearful we may be anxious but when the lord god reveals to our hearts that he is our refuge we can just rest in that we, we don't we don't need to ask any more clarifying questions we only need to know that the lord god is our refuge he is our strong tower He's our help in, our time, in time of need. That's what we ought to know. So going back to the question, why? Why were the people of Israel subject to two horrific losses when it seems like the Lord's will was for them to engage against the Benjaminites? Well, the fact of the matter is, that is only after those two losses that every one of them, all the army and all the people, came before the Lord with contrite and broken hearts, offering those peace offerings and the burnt offerings, to have at the forefront of their mind the necessary need for atonement, to have on the forefront of their mind the necessary need for true worship and the privilege of worshipping the only true God who's made himself known, but also the fellowship they have with the only true the only true God. You see, when you're immersed in the Lord, when you're enjoying His presence, when you're enjoying His light, His word, when that intimate personal relationship with Christ Jesus is real, nothing else matters. If you want us to fight, we'll fight. If you don't want us to fight, we're good. You're the treasure. You're our treasure. Christ is our treasure. We have many questions. All of us have many questions with our children, our wives, our husbands, our parents. 
We have questions about our careers. We have questions about many things. This world is filled with tribulation. But take heed, because Christ Jesus has overcome the world. You see, taking heed that Christ Jesus overcomes the world takes your eyes off the things of this world and places them where they belong in Jesus Christ. So, beloved brothers and sisters, I encourage you to place your eyes upon the author and the perfecter of our faith, Christ Jesus. Dwell with him. Remain there at the feet of Christ. Trust him for your future. You'll still have questions that may not be answered, but you ought to know that by faith that if you if you have come to know him, if he has indeed cleansed you from your sins and he's reconciled you with the God of the universe and no one can take that away, he's the good shepherd that will lead you home. Rest in that.